I just had a realization, which is I might be one of the TikTok white husbands. <laughs> I'm Anne McNamee Keels. And I'm Stephanie Shavera. And this is Lapsed. A podcast about growing up Catholic. And today we have a very special guest. Very exciting. So Heather Bowling is a program coordinator for the Edith O'Donnell Institute of Art History at the University of Texas at Dallas. She has a BA in art history from Southern Methodist University in Dallas and an MA in art history from the University of Colorado Boulder. Her archaeological fieldwork includes the, here's where I start, butchering words, so apologies, <laughs> the Villa of Maxentius, located in the Via Appia, just south of Rome, and the Aplantis Project, a site near Pompeii in southern Italy along the Bay of Naples. Museum experience includes leading tours for elementary students as a gallery educator in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in D.C., and writing about artworks for the Digital Collections team at the Dallas Museum of Art. She's taught at Georgetown, at George Mason University, the Corcoran College of Art and Design, Ithaca College, University of Colorado Boulder, and currently serves as the Graduate Program Advisor for the MA in Art History at UT Dallas. She has formal language training, unlike me, in Latin, Attic Greek, French, Spanish, German, and Italian, whoa, and currently speaks one language comprehensibly but can order a meal in Italian, which really is the important thing. The most important. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I have to put the language part on there because... It is embarrassing how much formal training I've had in languages, and I speak none. Just well, <laughs> I'm sure, though, it comes in handy here and there with little, you know. It does, yeah. uh, especially for meals. Yes, for ordering food, which is <laughs> yeah. really the most important That's thing. That's the most important part. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, Heather. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled that anyone wants to hear about art history. Uh, <laughs> oh, so absolutely, I do. We do. Good. I feel like art history stuff, it does come up a surprising amount when we're talking about the Catholic Church. Yes. And that is because the Catholic Church is who had the money for a long, long time. <laughs> so <laughs> that is who was able to pay for and commission artworks. So that's. I mean, as problematic as the Catholic Church can be, at least they spent their money on some art and like nurtured artists. That's something good in there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. Heather looks skeptical. Yeah, I would say it was not totally uh, generous. There's always, yeah, I'm uh, sure. you know, you mean the Catholic Church isn't just working from a place of altruism shocked. Right. Yeah. I mean, not completely, <laughs> but yes, I like that. Um, I like that positive spin on, on we gotta do what I can do on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Swing at straws sometimes. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so Heather, you were raised Catholic as well, right? Yes. Catholic in Texas, which um, wow. I feel like is, I want to know all about it. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit different than I imagine Chicago or Boston or other areas mm -hmm. with huge Catholic communities. I was trying to think about this before coming to talk with you. I grew up in Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe in my town, which Plano is a huge suburb. Um, it's huge. There was one 
Catholic church that we went to when I was growing up, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Um, So that was our, that was our church. But I was confused as a child that none of my friends went to my church. Church Mm -hmm. is a a huge community building part of culture in the South and in Texas, especially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a social thing. I always wanted to go to church with my friends, go to go to their church. And I didn't understand the difference between a Bible church or a Baptist church or Methodist, Lutheran even. And we went to Catholic church. Um, and I didn't understand that there was some stigma associated with mm. that then. And I would say now as well, going to youth group types of things with with my friends and going to their churches, many, many people don't think that Catholics are Christians. Mm-hmm. So I got that evangelical bend a lot mm-hmm. growing up as a kid. So that was very confusing for me, I would say. Lots of confusion on other people's part about Mary and saints. Yeah. yeah. You know, what is that? I have this very specific memory of a friend of mine asking about Mary and why we pray to Mary or why we pray to saints when you should just be praying directly to God. And Mm -hmm. have you asked Jesus to be in your heart? And it's like, I am baptized. Yeah. I have done my first communion. I have done first reconciliation. You know, I would go through the the sacraments that I had done, but it's a completely different understanding of a relationship with God. Yeah. And so that was something that really started to change for me, I think, in middle school and high school as I was sort of wrestling with my Catholic upbringing, but what that sort of, what it meant in practice. Mm -hmm. I remember our priest, too, saying something to us one Sunday morning about he was in like a running group or something like he was getting ready to go in this jogging group. And he had someone come up to him and say, "Um, Oh, it's been so nice to meet you. And I've really enjoyed, Hey, would you, are you busy on Sunday morning? Would you consider, you know, coming to church (laughs) with me? Because this is what evangelical culture, you know, they're reaching out, they're building community. And he, you know, was laughing to the entire congregation because he was like, I am, you know, busy. I am kind of busy on (laughs) Sunday mornings. mornings. Yeah. (laughs) Because he's a priest. But I remember him saying, you know, maybe maybe we should be doing, you know, like maybe we should be inviting people. So the evangelical culture is very much like how many people can we get in here? And the Catholic church is very like, well, you're not going to take communion if you haven't done this. There's more of, there's some gatekeeping around that. So it was a lot to work through, I think. Yeah, that is so interesting. Stephanie moved around a lot. So she had kind of lots of different Catholic experiences. I very much grew up in a place where like everyone was Catholic. I went to a Protestant church one time because my aunt was Protestant and my cousin was being Uh baptized. And I was like, why is there a woman on the altar? And why are they using real bread? Where's the communion wafers? Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, I feel like that must be such a different experience when you're aware that Catholicism is something different than other kinds of Christian. It was a gradual realization, but something that was not necessarily new for my mother, who her her family 
was Catholic, very, very Catholic. Like we had nuns. Wow. My grandmother's sister was a nun. Like Mm. that was the Catholic part of the family. So when she married my dad, whose family was not Catholic, it Mm. was a really big deal in the same Mm. way that JFK as a Catholic president was a big deal, you know? And I still just, I don't know that I fully understand it still to this day. I don't understand that distinction and I don't understand who gets to say, you know, (laughs) like who gets to say whether you are a Christian or not based on your affiliation with, I don't know, it's strange. But, you know, since I am a lapsed Catholic, I am not in the Texas Catholic world at all. But, you know, there are lots of Catholic schools in Dallas. I mean, that's, um, those are the really good private schools. So, I mean, there's a Catholic community here, but it's certainly not the dominant culture or the dominant religion in Texas or Dallas specifically. No, I, yeah, we moved gradually south as I grew up and it was just uh-huh. very, like, like, fewer and fewer of my classmates were Catholic and yeah. It was odd and strange. And then we moved, we jumped down to Florida, which all of a sudden there is a big like Latinx Catholic community. Uh-huh. And so there's like a right. very different thing. Right. Culturally, that's really different for sure. Yeah. So did you go to CCD, Heather? I did. <gasps> and, not, and not only did I go to CCD, I was, I was like a helper, you know, Ooh. for younger CCD classes and things. Yeah. I mean, I did the whole, I did the whole thing. Did you get confirmed? I did. Yes. And I actually submitted something for your um, uh, episode. I think this was a while ago, but it was about confirmation. Yes. Confirmation names. Yeah. And this is funny because this is really indicative of where I was at that moment in my life, but I was very challenging things, yes. but I chose Gabriel, um, who oh, was the, I'm uh, remembering now. Yes, was was not female. So that was weird for a girl to choose. Yeah. Uh, a male mm-hmm. confirmation name, but also not a saint, uh, an angel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's true. I didn't know you were allowed to do that. I just did it. Love it. And, you know, I chose that because Gabriel gave Mary the good news. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I wanted to, you know, I don't know. It's very cheesy. No, it's not. You put that into it. Well, I did. I mean, I love like the Catholic rebellion, right? Yeah. Like, it's just like <laughs> I'm a, I'm gonna be a guy, right? It's a guy, it's yeah. an angel. Like, it's like, that's bad. Yeah, it's a bad girl. Yeah, yeah you could say. I asked the difficult questions, and that's right. Uh, I gave my CCD teacher a run for his money. Good. Well, I mean, I think he's probably sick of me by the end. (laughs) Because there's really, you know, when you try to logic a lot of this out, it just doesn't, doesn't. there's just, there are not answers. Yeah. Right. Um, Then they just come to, it's about faith. And you're like, that's not helping me. It's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. But I loved having these conversations. Yeah. And I really just, I asked a lot of questions. And I think, you know, as I was moving into my college years, I was really looking for something concrete. Mm -hmm. You know, I want some answer. And I think that's what sort of pushed me towards art history. Hmm. Because art, you can hold it. You know, it's something tangible. Mm -hmm. And I started really thinking about the early formation of the church thinking like, let's walk this back a little bit, you know, all the way back to its beginning. And so I think that wasn't the only thing, but that was a big part of why I got interested in archaeology, archaeology in Rome, which Mm -hmm. I realized much, much later, you know, when you try and line up 
what you're taught in church and what you read in the Bible. And you try and line that up with history, scholarly looks at cultures from the past. They never intersect. And I was looking to make sense of some of these things that were really disparate, you know, that nobody talked about Roman emperors at the same time that they're talking about Jesus, but that was the same time. Yeah. And it's actually like pretty important context too. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, super important. Thing. <laughs> it's very, very important, but you know, you don't hear about that context in church. No, nope, but you also, you, don't. you know, really in university classes, you're not talking about the church in the way that. I was used to talking about the church. You're not talking about it in terms of faith and and practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very sterile way of talking about religion that is sort of devoid of the really emotional and spiritual parts of religion, which to me are the, you know, the most important part. So I think I was always trying to kind of put these things together and like, get to the bottom of this church thing, you know, how did this church start and how can I really believe this and what uh-huh. evidence do we have? And sort of all of, of those kinds of questions that you think that you can get to the bottom of when you're 20 years old, you know, I'm going to be the, I'm the one that's going to solve this. (laughs) For sure. You almost need to be 20 years old (laughs) to be in that headspace. Yeah, that is probably true. So in college, while you were taking these classes, you were still considering yourself a practicing Catholic or you were like in an in-between space? Questioning Catholic? No, at that point I had rolled over to the evangelical side because so I was going to a Bible church. Wow. I was going to Bible studies and I was doing my own devotionals and Bible studies and things. I was not involved in the Catholic church. And I remember my mom saying like, there's a Catholic student center on Aww. campus mm-hmm. at Southern Methodist University, <laughs> you know, which that's hilarious. Yeah, which is not, you know, it doesn't have necessarily a religious affiliation. If anything, it's more like the religion is sororities and fraternities. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's a a private school with a very wealthy base of of students there. So at that point, I was still what evangelicals would call a believer. I was attending church. It was the center of my life. It wasn't until about sophomore year, I took an art history class for some sort of elective. It was the ancient Maya. So ancient Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, that area of the world. And I was just, I was so fascinated. And I realized that you could major in it. And so I just switched my major to take all art history classes to finish out college. And then I didn't realize until it was too late that there was an entire field of study called classics. Mm -hmm. And classics, you know, is a, it's a department in a universe, many universities, although less and less now, And many times people misunderstand classics to mean like classical literature, like I'm going to read Steinbeck or, you know, Mm -hmm. the the classics, but... Odyssey, yeah. Well, yes, that is. Um, The Odyssey does fit in there. Classics is the study of ancient Greece and Rome. So Mm -hmm. you're all of those languages, literature, art, culture, and this sort of, not the derivatives, but there are some other, like the Etruscans are in there as well. So that's classics. It's ancient Greece and Rome. Um, And I didn't realize until too late in my college career that you could study that. I mean, that Mm -hmm. was, that's a whole 
thing, which truly historically in Western culture, people who study these kinds of things are like gentlemen scholars, you know, it's like <laughs> the rich men who um, did the grand tour in the, you know, mm-hmm. in the 18th and 19th century, traveling around to all the archaeological sites in, in Europe, studying Latin, reading, you know, uh, ancient texts and things. And this was considered to be sort of the core of the education of an upper class person. So I didn't right. realize this until way, way later. So it's kind of, I guess, I guess a late bloomer. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's how college works a lot of the time. Yeah. It's yeah. like not until you're in it that you're like, wait, people just There's always possible. No one's going to tell you all the possibilities. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. it's like when I was 13 and I got made fun of at school for not shaving my legs. And then it was like, why did no one tell me that this was a thing? Like, I just right. didn't know. You yeah. know, like I didn't yeah. know this existed. I didn't know people were shaving. Thanks for the memo on that. Yeah. Very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Well, and also, let me just say now, since I'm a parent, you guys are parents, having your child choose art history as their major is scary. You know, (laughs) that's a scary thing, even though I think it's more relevant than anyone really understands or knows. Mm -hmm. I think visual literacy is so important Mm -hmm. and asking questions and critical thinking, which you can get from a lot of different things. But yeah, you know, as a 22-year-old graduating with a degree in art history, it's a tough choice. There's not a natural career path. There's not a natural journey that you take to support yourself Mm -hmm. after after that, even if you're asking great questions. <laughs> I mean, you're talking to two people who majored in theater. Right. So or mine Woo! was even performance <laughs> studies. So oh, yeah. just even more esoteric. And then mm-hmm. I remember at one point my mom was like, well, because then you're going to be an actor, right? And I was like, well, I'm not in acting classes. I said, I'm studying performance. And right. she said, well, define performance. And I was like, it's, it's what we're paying the big bucks for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can relate. I can relate to that. It's, yeah. Um, so yes, we we get it. It's a little scary, but I did and I do still believe strongly in this field and I don't regret anything. So mm-hmm. uh, that's good. Well, that's good. I mean, you've made a pretty legit career path for yourself. Yeah, I, I mean... Only because I'm married to someone who has a very stable job and always has, and I have very supportive family, you know, like there's no other way to do that. And I always tell this to my students, you know, this is not the thing that you go into debt for, like, you're not going to, you should not take out a ton of loans for this because you're not going to, you're not going to make it back, but it will feed you spiritually mm-hmm. if not if not actually you know yeah actually. speaking of that do you feel like art has replaced religion for you oh that's a good question you know maybe maybe yeah I, I mean there is something really really personal about going to see works of art and I mean in a museum, I mean, in situ, you know, in their original setting in Mm -hmm. a church or a temple or whatever it is. It's something that, I mean, it's fun to talk about art with other people, but it's something that is deeply personal 
-hmm. in so many ways. And it's truly endless. You know, I mean, you can never know every artist, every time period, every culture around the world. And that's why I, I always kind of feel a little bit like a fraud because I'm, you know, you can't know everything, but like a relationship with God, it's just this unending thing. Mm. It's a rich place to be. And it's something you can do when you're young and when you're old, mm -hmm. when you're alone, when you're with people. I truly believe that art is for everyone. You know, it's not just for gentlemen scholars. <laughs> it should be accessible for everyone. And in its purest form, it is. Um, but in reality, you know, of course, it's, right. it's not. But I'm probably going to think about that question for a few days. After. <laughs> Good. Yeah, let us know if you come to any conclusions. Yeah, I will. I'll, okay. I'll let you know about that. So you were like raised Catholic and doing the Catholic thing. And then you're sort of in this more evangelical space and going to college and discovering classics and all this stuff. Once you kind of were delving into that time period in terms of art, do you feel like that gave you a new understanding then of Catholicism and Christianity? Yes, for sure. I mean, it is a complicated history. It is mm -hmm. so, so complicated. And I do have a greater understanding of it now. I don't know that I have more answers. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know that it, it gave me the answers I was looking for. But I definitely have a greater understanding of how the early church was formed. And I feel like I was able to put the pieces of my church education and my academic education together in a way that made sense. Um, and it's something that's been really useful as a parent too. You know, I mean, being able to talk to my kids about it in this hopefully neutral way, you know, I, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make judgments or pass judgments at all, but just kind of knowing the context of things I think does Mm -hmm. Were there any big surprises or moments of like aha moments? This probably is not surprising to you, but it's political. I mean, all of this, and that's yeah. and that's why I was laughing at like how nice that the Catholic Church bought art. Yeah, give somebody to art. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's all political from the very very beginning, and so when we talk about you know, if you're if you're sort of situating yourself on the timeline, and we think of Jesus living in the first century, um, mm -hmm. which you know, hilariously, we build all of time around. Right. The I know birth, the birth of Jesus. Um, we're supposed to say CE and BCE, so the Common Era and before mm -hmm. Common Era right. now, but we all know that we're saying right. right now, um, well, what well, as like what marked it? Yeah, right. yeah exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, we all know that the, that the time is based around when Jesus was living. So after that point, Jesus is living in the Roman world, which is a polytheistic place. You know, the Roman religion is very, very complicated. There are many, many different gods. There are many different rituals. And there's not a separation between church and state, you know, <laughs> in, in the Roman world. They're all linked to one another. And there's not a, a separation between, you know, emperors can become gods. You know, mm -hmm. there there's right. this, this fluidity for certain kinds of people. In terms of material culture and the, the stuff that we get, if we're talking about artwork or architecture or, you know, paintings, whatever it is, we don't start seeing stuff. We don't start seeing Christian art until much later because these are sort of subversive. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you guys know 
early church history, but they don't have money, first of all. So mm-hmm. they're not... They're radicals. They, they're not like buying art supplies and, you know, <laughs> and making things. Most of the time, Christians are worshiping in private homes, you know, and it's mm-hmm. something that's very, very similar to many of the cult practices that are a part of the Roman world. And Christianity was the most popular cult of all time. I mean, it is it is the cult practice, and there are many different cults in Roman religion. But around 300 CE, so we move way past Jesus's lifetime, this is like when the Roman Empire is really, it's getting too big. There are lots of problems in governing a state of that size. So we have what's called the Tetrarchy, where there are two senior and two junior officials. A junior and a senior rule the West and a junior and a senior rule the East to kind of keep tabs on the entire Roman Empire. And that sort of falls apart around 306. Um, And we have two big contenders. They're two sons of the Tetrarchs, of these, the the rule of four. We have Maxentius, who you mentioned Ah. earlier. And then we have the more famous of the two contenders, Constantine, Mm. um, that emerge as the sort of major players wrestling for control or wrestling to become the emperor. In 306, um, Maxentius just sort of usurps the throne and decides that he is emperor for about six years. He basically, you know, in terms of art and architecture, he basically goes around and starts trying to put his his name on everything. Like, <laughs> oh, this basilica is also my basilica, or I'm going to build this right here. You know, this is an illiterate, largely illiterate society. You know, there are the way that messages are spread in the public sphere through art and architecture. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a very, and not words either. It's the, it's the visual language that's so important. So if you build this really big thing and you know that Maxentius built it, it's like, wow, he must legitimately be the emperor, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. And so he starts kind of doing this, but Constantine is also planning his sort of takeover. So in 312, there's this very famous moment, like when you think of Constantine, what do you think of? I know Constantine was on your mind a little bit with with some of these like what do you think of with Constantine well so first of all as we're talking I just had a realization which is I might be one of the TikTok white husbands because because <laughs> you think what? about the Roman Empire I do- so I was like you know there's this thing on TikTok I don't know people are asking they're mostly white guy husbands you can ask your husband after this stuff yeah okay is like how often do you think about the Roman Empire and all these guys are like I don't know a couple times a day or like some absurd what? amount <laughs> And so I asked my husband and he's like, what are you talking about? He did not fit that. Mold. I don't know. It didn't work. Oh, did you ask your husband's? No, no, because <laughs> I felt like I was exempt from this. I've been thinking about the Roman Empire for a really long time. So. Well, here's the thing. So yeah. I don't I don't think about the Roman Empire. I was like, never like rarely. But I actually think about Constantine all the time. Oh, well, tell me. Yeah. What are you thinking about? I have this thought where I'm like, you know, this like above it all thought where I'm like, how like okay so we're in the timeline where Constantine spread Christianity and Uh it changed everything like we're in that bizarre timeline like as an alien Mm -hmm. to be like wait 
this long ago, this guy spread this one religion from this one guy 300 years prior, and that's like shaped the entire world and colonialism. Yeah. yeah. So I think about that. And then, then with the with the podcast, I just am, I'm thinking about Constantine like all the time. That makes some sense. So what do you know about Constantine? Like, you know, he was the first Christian emperor, so-called. But... Yeah. Yeah. I just know that he spread Christianity and like forced people to be Christian or that's my... I just saw a community theater production of Pippin. So right now I'm thinking about that Constantine. Oh. (laughs) Um, They do even reference in that musical, as crazy as that musical is, but like that he was killing people. You know, I mean, he was forcing the, the religion on people. I do. I mean, that's one thing I have thought of, but. That's my understanding too. Do you know how he became a Christian? Do you know that story? It's no. kind of famous. Like, why did he just wake up one day and is like, you know what? This tiny cult. That's right. That's the one I'm going with. Yeah. yeah uh, I think I'm going to go with that. I don't know. Tell us. Well, and of course, this is all, this is just the legend. I mean, anytime you read ancient texts or any of these stories, I mean, these are all stories that are written to push some agenda. Okay. So, mm-hmm. th- I mean, I don't believe that this is actually true. But the story is, so Maxentius and Constantine are about to go into battle. And there's a famous battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And the Milvian Bridge is in the north part of Rome. It's still there today, uh, some version of it. It's a place where... Today, Italian teenagers go to make out. Um, yes, you know, like right. just, yeah. <laughs> but the Battle of the Milvian Bridge was the the battle where Constantine defeated Maxentius and and t- became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. But the night before the battle, he mm-hmm. had a vision. Ooh, I was going to say always a vision. Yeah, he ha- had a vision where he saw the Kai and the Rho. So Kai and Rho in Greek. Um, which is like looks like an X and a P, which you're probably uh, very yes. familiar with that. Yes. And he saw a burning cross. He had this vision. And so he demanded that all of his soldiers have this emblem put on their shields and things. And he basically made a deal <laughs> and said, if I win in name of Christos with the Kai in the row, representing Jesus, representing Christianity, then I promise to, you know, ah. become a Christian and wow. make that the official religion. And he did. And he won. And then he really went for it. He really did. He really did go for it. So he shows <laughs> his gratitude by ending the persecution of Christians, uh, recognizing Christianity as a lawful religion, okay, not just a underground kind of thing. And his mother, Helen, who is a saint, also really pushed this agenda. So he becomes the emperor. In 324, he defeats his last enemy. He then moves the capital from Rome to Byzantium, mm-hmm. which he renames Constantinople after himself, which we all know from the song. Yes. Yes. That's how I know it. (laughs) Istanbul is Constantinople. So he moves all the way to Turkey at this point. That is a very strategic place to be if you think of the peninsula there. Mm -hmm. It sort of is the barrier between the East and the West. And really, that is the end of Rome as the sort of center of the Roman Empire. But he retained his 
position is Pontifus Maximus, which means the highest priest in the Roman religion, and did not, I mean, as the story goes, did not convert personally to Christianity until he was on his deathbed. What? So he managed to sort of play all the cards and stay in everyone's good graces. But he also, he was sort of very tolerant in terms of religion, allowing all of these religions to flourish. 313 is the Edict of Milan, and this is like a very important part of early church history, um, where he's granting freedom to all religious groups within the Roman Empire, not just Christians. This is not what I thought of him. No. Okay. I'm shocked. It's low-level progressive, I think, here. <laughs> My bar was that low. Though. Yeah, well, that's, that's fair. So yeah, you know, he is sort of, and I, you know, these are all political moves. Too. Yeah, okay. You know, like, this is not, I, I, I think, you know, we don't want to think of him as, again, like altruistic, but these are all political moves. But, you know, once he moves the capital and once the doors are open in terms of religion within the empire, that's when things really start to change. And there are so many, I mean, I've taken whole classes on this. There are so many councils and, you know, establishing what Christianity is and the disagreements between the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and what it means in terms of how the religion is defined. And it's within all of these discussions that we get the break in the church between the Western Catholic Church and then the Eastern Greek Orthodox. You know, those, mm-hmm. those are the two, yeah. the two directions that it eventually goes. But, you know, he dies in 327, I think. He is the sole emperor until his death. And from then on, we're looking at the Byzantine era for the next thousand or less than that years or so where the center of the church really is there in Turkey more in the east than we typically think Hmm. but all of the things that we think of when we think of the Catholic church now like bishops and dioceses and parishes these are all Mm -hmm. established in the fourth century wow oh wow Mm -hmm. and even the words are the same Right. No, when you said like pontifical, we still use that word like. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that was all established pretty early on. Now, when does this Christian art and iconography, like, does that start under him? or? Well, this is a great question because one of the challenges for Constantine is how to get everybody to buy into this. <laughs> so, you know, this is a major shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not only in religion, but in government and culture. And he did a really smart thing, which is not a new idea. I mean, the Romans did it with Greek stuff, where you just borrow the same thing, yes. repackage <laughs> it in a new way a little bit, or sometimes even not, no. but you yeah. just use the same imagery, the same architecture in just a little bit different context, it has a new meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's comfortable for people. You know, Mm -hmm. it it feels comfortable. And so if you look in Roman art, there are all these precedents for figures like Jesus, the way that the bearded, and I mean, there are are arguments around this. All the white Jesus. White Jesus, bearded. (laughs) He looks just like a Roman emperor, you know, a later Roman emperor. (laughs) 
So, um, or even things like, like the good shepherd, you know, Christ is the good shepherd with like a boy as a shepherd with the lamb around his mm-hmm. neck, Orpheus, Apollo, Hermes, yeah. these are all ancient precedents. But in the context of Christianity, Jesus is the good shepherd and, you know, we are his sheep. So it's efficient. It's cost effective. (laughs) You know, it helps to make everybody, you know, feel comfortable because we're using the same the same holidays. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, you you have this day as a festival day. But instead of that festival, it's this festival. We're renaming it. We're doing the same thing, but we're just calling it something a little different. And then that feels good to everyone. Right. I just saw a tweet, something about evangelical churches have harvest festivals, which are a Christian alternative to Halloween, which was the Christian alternative to har- harvest festivals. Like it all yeah. has come back around. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty spot on. I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, it, it is a lot of recycled stuff. Like, for example, churches um, and church architecture with the basilica. The basilica is a Roman design. Okay. But that was not religious architecture. It was for courts. Oh. They were legal places. But you would enter in from the side, like from the long end. So the Christians just close that door off, put a nave at the front, and we enter in through the long end and have the apse at the end. So then you walk into the church, boom. Oh. It's a different place. And many Roman basilicas were repurposed churches. And, you know, they have those political bends too because everybody knows who built something and when people start paying money to decorate a church to add wings or add butter you know add all the things that are flashy then those people they themselves are pious as well whether it's an emperor or a politician or you know a rich family or whatever it is and so artworks and architecture in the Christian world have so many layers of meaning. And as art historians, something that we do and that I think everyone should do is ask questions of artwork. Um, and the mm. question that I like to ask the most is, who paid for this? Because <laughs> that will tell you a lot. It will mm-hmm. tell you a lot about motivations. It will tell you a lot about what people are up to. In the Byzantine world, when I think of that early Christian art, I think of mosaics a lot. Mm-hmm. Mosaics are being produced largely in Ravenna, which is in the north of Italy, and then shipped around. But mosaics, if you don't know, are murals basically made up of teeny tiny little tesserae, little pieces of glass or stone mm-hmm. that are colored that create these beautiful, beautiful scenes. So Lots of mosaics in in early Christian art. They're durable. They're more durable than painting. They're glittery, but they're also very flat. You know, it's hard to make a lot of linear perspective Mm -hmm. with with mosaics. And so I think of those a lot. But then I also think, you know, later altarpieces are really important, Mm -hmm. you, you know, which most people would not have been able to see up close, but now we look at them very, very closely. But there's this sort of performative aspect of closing and opening. And that place of the altar is the most holy place. That's where transubstantiation happens. That's where, you know, the body of Christ is offered. And so, you know, these objects are not just paintings. They have so much more meaning both spiritually, politically, socially, and otherwise. So seeing things in a museum 
is always, I mean, it's wonderful, but it's taking it way, way, way out of context. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think it's better to see things in their original locations when at all possible. But, you know, that's mostly not possible (laughs) for various reasons. I feel like, Steph, oftentimes you and I are like, well, we really need to talk to an expert to figure out if we're understanding this right. And so we have (laughs) an expert today. That's very exciting. Well, let's not call me an expert. I mean, I'm I'm really, really, really not. Um, But, you know, I am very interested in it. And I do think that having this level of visual literacy helps you interpret current political messages and things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is not new stuff. Yeah. I think it's important to look critically at any image that you see, whether it was produced 2000 years ago or whether it was made recently. But the context always really, really matters. Where was it meant to be seen? Who paid for it? How big is it? Who could have seen it? You know, what's the materials, um, because that tells you a lot as well. I mean, these are all the questions that we ask to try and make sense of material culture, of these all the stuff that we've, we mm-hmm. as humans have made for thousands of years. Why? Why this? Why now? Um, mm-hmm. And so for early, early Christians, there's not much happening in public. But once Constantine opens the gates... A lot of money is being funneled that way to support these political motives and desires. It's it's about power, you know, most of it. Yeah. And you're right. It's so, like you were talking about, like, it's useful talking to your kids now. I think that is something, especially with my nine-year-old, it's like, so what message are they trying to give the person? Or, you know, he'll see yeah. an ad and be like, oh, and it's like, okay, so somebody does want you to buy something here. You yeah. know, <laughs> Exactly. Who paid for this? What do they okay. want? Like, yeah, those things are all still really relevant uh-huh. Uh-huh. in all parts of life. That's right. Everyone should study art history yes. for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when, and I should know this, I totally don't. So when did the Vatican happen? Like when, when was, did that? Well, I, we might be getting into areas that I don't specialize. That's okay. But I can tell you what I know. <laughs> in the fourth century, in the exact location where St. Peter's Church in the Vatican is right now, there was an old St. Peter's Basilica. It was a fourth century Christian church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was built there at that location because that was the location of uh, St. Peter's martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Have either of you been to the Vatican? Steph has. So, you know, you can go down into the crypt yeah. underneath and see where all these popes are buried. And supposedly, you know, there's a lot of, I'm dubious about a lot of these <laughs> uh, relics and things. But, right. Um, but yes, that location is holy. But basically, you know, when we're talking about the way that the church was broken down, they're the geographical units of the diocese, the church officials called bishops who are governors of the diocese. And those are made up of smaller units called parishes, which are led by the priests. Wow. So basically, the bishop's church is a cathedral, um, it, which is from Latin, cathedra, which means the chair. And then the Bishop of Rome eventually became the head of the Western Catholic Church with the title of Pope, because that was the seat of the bishop of the head of the Western split. 
Now, in terms of like, where did the Vatican come? I don't know. I don't know. It's funny. Like so much of what you're saying, I'm like, oh, I remember that question on Jeopardy. Like that's where it's coming. (laughs) Yeah. Like cathedral. Yes. I remember that. Steph has really put her CCD knowledge to use in watching Jeopardy and crossword Mm -hmm. puzzles. And I really admire all of that. You know, it's useful. And the thing is, (laughs) I used to teach a lot of intro to art history and I used to have to assign students to read portions of the Bible because they have never read these stories. You cannot Mm. teach intro to art history without having some knowledge of the Bible. Um, So I spent a lot of time like reading from the Bible because these, you know, these are didactic basically, you Mm -hmm. know, like especially something fresco cycle in a church about the life of St. Francis or whatever it is. People can't read, you know, like for most of of human history. And so the visual communication of these stories is instructional as well. And Mm -hmm. it's really, really Mm -hmm. important in terms of, you know, spreading and teaching and keeping Christianity and Catholicism generally. I don't even know what question I want to ask, but as you're talking, I keep thinking of the stations of the cross and the visual of that Mm -hmm. in the church. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, again, I'm not sure what the question is, but I'm just like, why, why, like, this is like the, the stained glass windows change from church to church. Mm -hmm. There's so much that changes, but it feels like that visual story is. Mm -hmm. It's gruesome. It's so gruesome. It's so awful. I mean, to be crucified, I mean, that's a Roman invention. Yeah. It is the most horrific yeah. way to die. And it, you know, it's so crazy that that is represented over and over and over again. I remember I'm just having this flashback to my grandmother's house in her guest <laughs> bedroom where we would stay. You know, she had a crucifix hanging up there and right. Jesus is like, dying and bleeding it used to scare the shit out of me like you're laying in bed trying to go to bed at night looking up at that image that has for me no context at that point in my life but you know catholicism is gruesome i mean that action which is central to the faith truly is such a gruesome thing and you know there are some really really gnarly depictions of it you know in germany in the medieval era you know like the medieval germany is like very very gruesome i'm not surprised you know very very catholic cultures interpret it in different ways there's a very famous church in rome that you can go visit that i think it's the capuchins the monks that, ha- are, you know, their church is, is made of human skulls, you know, ah! but in Naples specifically, and I, you know, I work a lot on the Italian peninsula. So a lot of my knowledge is based on this, but in Naples, there's a very gruesome culture as it relates to spirituality and mm-hmm. Christianity and Catholicism, but there's a lot of blood and skulls underneath the city of Naples in Southern Italy. There used to be access to these mass graves of people who have died over the centuries and buried and people, one of my colleagues was telling me this, her grandmother used to do this, but people would go down into this sort of mass burial underneath Naples and choose a human skull or a part of like a tibia or, you know, a part of the the skeleton, take it to their home, create a little box or sort of home for it, nurture it, pray for it, 
make a deal with it and basically get, you know, give its soul, its final resting place since okay. they were not given a proper burial. Wow. And then in exchange, you also get something, you know, from, of the, course. Yeah. So, you know, there are all these offshoots of Catholicism <sighs> that are so fascinating to me because they really are very, very reminiscent of the ancient world. You know, they're reminiscent they of making deals with gods and, you know, making this sacrifice uh-huh. of blood in order to have a better crop, you know, or whatever the yeah. exchange is, you know, it's not that different really from a lot of the religion of the ancient world. So I love hearing about it in a modern context because it's mystical and spiritual mm-hmm. and tender as well. You know, the idea of, taking care of someone who's sort of been tossed aside yeah. and putting their yeah. soul, soul at rest is a really beautiful notion. When I was growing up, I remember my, I guess my evangelical or non-Catholic Christian yeah. classmates. I'm using evangelical very loosely. Yeah. yeah. I was like, all of them, I don't know. One of their big things was talking to us about, like they would, I got made fun of, I guess this was a dig at me didn't really burn that hard, but it was about like my iconography, like all, all of the, the pictures and, and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So I'm interested when Lutheranism and all of mm-hmm. this offshoot happened when they were just like anti-art or mm-hmm. just anti, like. Well, I think what happened, you know, do you know what iconoclasm is? Do you know what that is like a big thing that happened? Basically people stopped worshiping God and started worshiping the The image image and the Mm. object. And, you know, this is a common thing, not just in Catholicism or Christianity, in Islam, this Mm -hmm. in Judaism, there's a real concern with the worshiping of the object instead of worshiping Mm. God. So Mm -hmm. some ways to skirt that are to never represent the human figure Mm -hmm. or human form. Other ways to do that during iconoclasm were just to like destroy everything, you know, <laughs> get rid of yeah. it, um, which is really powerful, you know, breaking images. That's what that means. Mm. Um, and destroying the power of those images and re- restoring the power of God. You know, images are powerful. They are um, and they were. And so there is there's a pendulum that switches back and forth and back and forth. And really, until about... I'm going to say it's not totally unheard of, but until about the 18th century or so, and then really more in earnest in the 19th century, there are not that many depictions in the Western world. I'm not speaking globally, but in the Western Christianized world, there are not that many non-religious images. Like you Mm. don't see paintings of workers you know, um, right. or low people, peasants, things mm-hmm. like that. The, the only things that are worthy of representation and worship are religious, char- you know, almost mm. characters, but religious images. So mm-hmm. that's why for a good amount of time there, with the exception of, of you know, portraits of other rich people, people who could afford to commission portraits of themselves um, <laughs> we don't really have a lot of other subject matter you know right. the subject matter is religious in nature mm-hmm. with mary as a very very central figure and 
the crucifixion, Mary and the baby, the Christ child, and then all other saints and other biblical stories and things. But the, these are the main main mm-hmm. matters. You're talking about sort of this, the tension in lots of different religions around mm-hmm. um, imagery. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about when I lived in India, in Varanasi, yeah. it's like the opposite because everyone loves it. Every The images are everywhere. Like you go to buy some chai and there's like a picture of Ganesh. Like it's yeah. everywhere. <laughs> and when I went to Catholic mass in India, which was not in Varanasi, it was in Jaipur. But the one thing I noticed, like there were guys outside mass selling all these like icons and things, which I'm sure like at the Vatican you would get, but this is just like a normal, like just yeah. a random neighborhood church it was the kind of stuff you could find with Ganesh on it or with Rama but like it had Mary and it had Jesus and the saints and I was like oh cool like I was like should I buy something yeah you <laughs> I don't should. know I mean you know, <laughs> why not in. I love those kinds of things because they're intimate and small mm-hmm. you, you know mm-hmm. you're personal you hold them in your hand that's why you know when you're looking at maybe an image of an artwork online or something like that it's really important to know the size of it because yeah. if it's huge that means something really really different than if it's this this small something thing small. even or if it's a print which is like easily reproduced it's a much more affordable economical way of distributing an image versus a you know, a one-off, a painted something, which that is the only original thing. That'll be worth a lot more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I mean, I think at different time periods and in different cultures, you know, relationships with images and objects too, um, not just images, but the objects themselves really shifts, not in a vacuum, but depending on what's happening sociopolitically. You know, it's all... Mm-hmm related and as art historians what what art historians do is situate objects in their context you know you see a thing there's this thing somebody made this at a time so the date is really important the provenance or the the where it came from is really important but then what you're doing is trying to figure out why where how come who what else was being made at this time Mm-hmm. What else was this artist doing? Who paid for it? Who owned it? Who would have seen it? I always think of like just squashing it down into a big mud pile or something where <laughs> it's just right in the middle and you're trying to figure out everything that's around it to give it meaning. And, you know, it's funny with objects and especially nowadays where, where objects aren't maybe as precious because we have so mm-hmm. much stuff yeah. around, but eight years ago, my parents lost their house in a fire. And it was really devastating to try and sift through all of that. But one of the things that people, they kept saying to me was like, because nobody was hurt. It was nobody was in the house. They kept saying, well, it's just, it's just stuff, you know, Mm. like it's just stuff. And I'm like, excuse me. (laughs) Saying that to an art historian, it's just stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Stuff is not stuff. You know, it, there is meaning. It has meaning. Um, it it means something and it, it's more than just the material qualities or properties. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you think of these, these things like that, that they're a reflection of, of the time that they're made, the desires, the hopes, the aspirations, then it helps maybe understand a little bit more. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe for one of our last questions, you were talking about seeing something online and how that's really different than seeing it in person. Can you tell us about like one thing, an object or a piece of art you've seen in real life that was like a big, big moment for you? Yeah. Well, you know, I got to go to Agia Sophia in Istanbul. This was our pre-baby moon. I'll never travel again now that we have children. But <laughs> right, that was a moment where I walked in and, you know, you lose your breath. It's just so, mm. it's so overwhelming. But I, I will say that I think all art is better in person. But hmm. architecture is yeah. what you really have to experience with your full body to fully understand, to fully feel it. And there's a church in Rome that I think about a lot. I don't know. You know, it's like a thing I think about a lot. It's always coming back to Rome. <laughs> We're all thinking about Rome all the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Everybody is. I got to ask Tom. <laughs> you got you to check out this trend. Yeah. Um, it's the Church of St. Ignatius of Loyola. So it's a Jesuit. Mm. Yeah. It's a Jesuit church. It's a Baroque church. And it's really, it's located in a pretty touristy area, but you wouldn't necessarily maybe walk in there. And actually, I went to Catholic Mass there a few times when I was in Rome because they have a Sunday service in English. Mm. And it was very interesting. But the church itself has this, I mean, in many many Catholic churches, you have this elaborate ceiling that's painted in fresco. But this one in particular is you have to see it in person because you physically, you're standing there and your neck is cricked all the way back as you look up. And the way that the trompe l'oeil or the trick of the eye, the way the artist mm -hmm. did it is so that it looks like the church walls extend through the ceiling and up into the heavens. And wow. so there's, it's got like part of the architecture recreated, but then it's got Puti and, you know, the angels and the clouds and everybody flying around. And there is a marble disc in the center of the basilica, which indicates where you're supposed to stand to see it in perfect perspective. So if you're uh. a little bit to the left, it's like, oh, that doesn't line up. But if you stand right on that disc, you look up and everything looks like the church has no ceiling and it's just going all the way to the heavens. Hilariously, if you turn and look towards the the apse or towards the altar where it would be, there is what appears to be a dome, which is a feat of engineering to create a round dome like we see in a lot of church architecture. But this mm -hmm. church didn't have enough money to do a dome because that's a really expensive thing to do. So the artist created a fake dome. He painted it and it looks real like sun is coming through the windows and it's rounded and in perfect perspective it looks real if you're looking at it from that one spot but if you start walking toward the altar it gets kind of distorted and you can tell that it's not real but it is just it's one of those things that you have to be you know you have to see oh, it and, wow. and be there so if you go to rome please go to saint ignacio which is i don't know i think it's in the campus martius it it's right in the middle of everything, but people walk by it all the time. But, you know, I do think go see art, you know, yeah. go, go see it. If you don't know what you're looking at, try and try and find out. But the, the great thing about having a Catholic childhood or background is that, I mean, that's very, very important stuff. You know, if yeah. you go to Europe and go to churches and things, you know, it hits a little different when you mm -hmm. have 
you have some background in biblical stories and the Catholic world and the early formations of the church. You know, every single thing in there has has meaning and was probably very expensive, paid for by <laughs> somebody. Yeah. Well, that's where you had one up on your art history classmates <laughs> who were not raised Catholic. You're like, right. well, yeah. yeah, I already know. I already know, I already know all, all about, about this. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What all of St. Francis is up to, uh, <sighs> the cycle of his uh. lifetime and all these other guys. I mean, it truly is. It's like all the gods and goddesses, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. what I loved about it. Cause I was such a nerd yeah. as a child. I was like, I love mythology. And I was like, yeah. Oh, we're like, pretty close to that we really are i, was, I like it i like it. just <laughs> maybe don't say that to your teachers in catholic school right they might no no, no. They not, my grandma got real mad when i mentioned that. people don't like that <laughs> but our listeners do i think yeah. so we can all say that here i hope so heather thank you so much i could have talked to you and listened to you all day i still I was- could well Thanks for letting me yap about this. It really was such a pleasure. And I, I appreciate your time with all this and your great questions. I'm going to have to really process some of this stuff. <laughs> it's fun to just be able to ask the questions and, and then walk, walk away. I have to know that, yeah, <laughs> and just leave. Yeah. Yeah. More questions than answers. That's yeah. what we're here for. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's right. Quick reminder to our listeners, we do have a new Patreon, Laps Podcast slash Patreon. We have a couple folks have joined. We have some new content there. I just put, I actually have a show and tell of a, I won't say too much, but it's a little box. Yeah, you gotta make people go. We're talking a lot about Italy today, but this comes from France, I think. I think the the little box is originally from France, but so anyway, Get on Patreon if you want to learn what that is. We also are on Instagram, Laps Podcast. And let's do our special collection. Heather, you have a an organization you want to promote? Yes, the World Central Kitchen. I know I, I was trying to find something art related, but truly food is really my my love language. And the World <laughs> Central Kitchen does so much They're on great. the ground to feed people and communities that are from the effects of war, of natural disasters, various problems, and they do a lot of really good work. So feeding feeding people, um, which yes. I think is very important. So World Central Kitchen. Great. I will put the link in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Yes, it was so fun. It was really nice to chat with both of you and see you, Anne. It's been a long time. Oh, it has been a long time. <laughs> yes. Heather and I know each other in life, but mostly on the internet so right right well hopefully i'll see you in life again sometime hopefully soon soon. yeah that'll be great all right well steph and heather will close this out as we always do and also with you and also with you and also with you